Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's May 10th. I'm talking to you from San Francisco, uh, as I always do, uh, May 10th, 2021 in the United States. And uh, infrastructure remains amongst the headlines this morning. Apparently, Joseph Biden, the current American president, is going to meet with GOP senators on infrastructure plan. He's in the business of building bridges with the Republicans. Um, Some of them seem to be open to those bridges. Mitch McConnell says that the plan should only cost up to $800 billion, which suggests that there may be some, um, some room for negotiation between, McGo- um, between McConnell and Biden. Uh, but of course, uh, Donald Trump, the ultimate, not bridge builder, but b- bridge destroyer, the guy who loves, whose whole brand seems to be rooted in blowing up bridges, still remains, according to the New York Times, having an Iron grip. I don't know if Tom, uh, Donald Trump has an iron anything, but according to the Times, he has an iron grip on the Republicans. Uh, and this seems to be manifested at the moment with the mini drama about the replacement of Liz Cheney, uh, Elise Stefanak, uh, New York, uh, uh, a New York um, politician, seems to be uh, Trump's choice and the party's choice to replace Cheney. Uh, and the left is loving this, of course. The Atlantic, one of the voice pieces of the left in America, suggests that Liz Cheney only has herself to blame when it comes to the blowing up of the Republican Party, the destruction of bridges within the Republican Party. So how are we going to really build bridges in America between between right and left and within the Republican Party itself? One, expert on bridge building, metaphorical or otherwise, is the USA Today uh, reporter Nathan Bomey. He has a new book out, appropriately called Bridge Builders, Bringing People Together in a Polarized Age. He is talking to me from Virginia, the heart of polarized country. Uh, Nathan, why are bridge builders so essential in America today? Well, I, I, you know, I started working on this book in late 2018, actually in the midst of the largest government shutdown in U.S. history, which actually feels like a distant memory at this point. It almost feels kind of quaint compared to what happened next. But in the time since then, we've had, of course, that shutdown. We've had this polarizing election. We had an impeachment we had an insurrection, we had another impeachment. You know, we've had so many polarizing events and I think that there's no doubt that those things will continue. So I've, you know, I felt to myself after writing a book on misinformation and how polarized people are, that I had to go out and, and meet people who aren't accepting the status quo. And that's how this book came about. Uh, you present uh, Nathan America as a family. You suggest that In many ways, and I'm quoting you here at the beginning of the book, America is like one big dysfunctional family uh, that despite its differences is better off when it's communicating and cooperating 
effectively. You'll have a lot of metaphors in the book about talking to one another again. You 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 present uh, perhaps the fix like the fix to an unhappy uh, man and woman in marriage of of going to ma- marriage counselling. Why is why why is that often? Uh, uh, marriage is a better left dead. It's better for a man and a woman to go off on their own if they don't get on with their spouse. Sure. Well, I think we're sort of stuck here. <laughs> I don't think that divorce is an option if we want to make progress on some of the things that you know so bedevil our country. I mean, think about something like climate change. If we refuse to talk to each other, if we refuse to work together, then I think the climate is doomed. Now, it may be doomed already, but the point is that you know, if we don't have conversations and established relationships between people who aren't like each other, whether it's people who pray differently, whether it's people who, who think differently, whether it's people who look differently, I don't think we'll be able to actually ch- tackle these issues. And honestly, that's one of the interesting things about bridge building. There's this perception that it's this really weak or sort of milquetoast sort of thing. I think it's countercultural. I think that it's actually the way that we can begin to address a lot of these issues. Uh, Nathan, you dedicate your book to Grandpa R.D. Tell me about your grandpa. What was you say he embodied the essence? When you say embodied, I assume he's no longer around. Yeah, the essence of bridge building. What was it about your grandfather that um, that that uh, that, that that represents the spirit of this book that, that perhaps in some ways uh, encourage you to write this book? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't really write about it in the book, so I appreciate the question. But it's, you know, he was uh, someone who was uh, a member of a church in urban Milwaukee in the mid-1970s at a time in which the country was um, really, you know, divided over this issue of integration in schools and, you know, a white man, of course, but he actually uh, still thought it was important for black kids to come to their church. And in fact, they helped integrate their own church and made this a a interracial congregation at the time. And I was just, I'm so inspired by the stories I've heard over the years. And it certainly informs my own thinking, which is that, you know, that Dr. King was right when he said that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. And, you know, so I think that it's, it's critical that we look at the church, we look at our religious institutions and say, how can we begin to address the fact that, unfortunately, so many religious institutions have been beacons of division instead of a reconciliation? And Nathan, you suggest that this problem of, of not being able to talk to one another, this uh, polarization, is not only bad in a spiritual, a, a metaphysical sense, but also in a political one. You suggest that it's actually undermining what you call our civic crisis uh, and it's perhaps chipping away, I use that word carefully, at what you call the arch stone of democracy. Why, uh, why is American democracy in trouble in, well, in our age of uh, polarization? Yeah, I, I think that we, you know, I understand people who talk about the need for some sort of political revolution, whether it's um, to completely revise the way we do democracy, the way we do politics. You know, that may be actually a very important conversation, something that we should have in this country. But I'm just looking at the facts on the ground, which is that that's not unlikely anytime soon, unless we have some sort of significant tilt in the way the you know Congress is divided, for example. And so what I'm looking at is the fact that our system is set up 
and basically commands that we bring about compromise or we bring about working together. But I don't think that compromise needs to be a bad thing. You know, I, I write in the book about how compromise has become a dirty word, that it's something that you actually, if you compromise, you're going against your principles. But I think we need to redraft this blueprint of compromise. I mean, that's what bridge builders do. They look at the idea and they say, it's not about splitting the baby with apologies to King Solomon. It's about actually building a solution that works for both sides. And I think, unfortunately, we so often talk about compromise as a solution that drains both sides. Nathan, one critique of your book, I think, is it it might be seen as, as a little bit nostalgic. Uh, you work, your day job is for USA Today, which is also, in some ways, I guess, uh, a nostalgic publication. I'm not sure uh, 2021 is its glory year. It still exists. But the, the age of USA Today seems to have passed us. Uh, can't we just acknowledge that America isn't united anymore and never will be? Oh, I, I don't think uh, I'm not nostalgic for some past era in which we all got along. I don't think that era existed. And I would even say that we don't need unity to put to you know push this country before forward. Unity is actually not really the right term. It's an admirable goal for us to somehow be unified. But bridge builders understand that unity is not the goal, that actually the goal is sort of to reestablish civic civic trust between you and me in the sense that we may disagree on whatever the issues are, and we may actually really come up, come at it from completely different angles. But what we need is to respect each other as humans and respect that each other has, you know, and oftentimes viable and understandable perspectives, even if we disagree. If we can reestablish that social trust, then we can begin to address a lot of the issues that plague us. But it's not about unity because you know what? Bridge builders understand that conflict is a normal thing. You need conflict for a healthy democracy. That's how we progress. Well, you remind us that we do indeed have uh, democracy. You remind us that Donald Trump got 72 million votes. And you also remind us that uh, 61% of um, Democrats believe that Republicans are racist, bigoted, and sexist, while 54% of Republicans view Democrats as spiteful and ignorant. Um, is that different from before? Is that different from the 1950s or 60s? What's changed? Yeah, I, I do think there's plenty of data there that shows that um, this affective polarization, this sort of crisis of tribalism is worse than before in the sense that the the emotional divide, the emotional gap between the sides has widened in the sense that I don't like you because you're a part of that group and you don't like me because I'm a part of this group. But when you dig deeper and you look at the issues, there's actually a lot more agreement on the issues than you might think. But there's this, this wide gap in what is called second order beliefs, which is what you believe that other people believe. And if you look at the data, for example, Democrats are likely to believe that Republicans are, uh, are anti-immigration across the board. But if you look at the data, they're not quite as anti-immigration. So, but but I, I've heard this argument before, but doesn't that suggest an even, an even deeper, more profound malaise? that it's not really an intellectual dispute about immigration. It goes deeper. It goes to the very core of culture. Perhaps it's an existential crisis of America. Uh, the Republicans and Democrats, they seem to recognize each other. 
and they loathe each other. They loathe each other. They loathe how they eat, uh, what gods they believe in, how they dress, what music, what movies they watch. So this is something much deeper than simply what they think about immigration. Oh, absolutely. I, I, that's why. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I'm saying. Is that the the problem is that we actually despise each other on a human level, not that we disagree necessarily on the issues, which that is always going to be the case and needs to be the case. And, and when you have that in a marriage, if if a man and a woman goes into a marriage counselor and it's clear that they loathe each other, yeah. most counselors will say, "Well, you're probably better off if you go your separate ways." Um, now, as you say, we can't split America up like the baby. We can't formally divorce, but we can agree to disagree with each other and simply live separate lives, can't we? No, I don't think we can. I don't, I don't think that we can agree to disagree. Actually, that's part of the problem is that we can't agree to disagree. And so we're stuck in this permanent sort of, you know, tornado of polarization and, and bad marriage miserable yeah. sour marriage living in a house with a spouse you absolutely loathe um uh nathan reading you know your book you make an effort to be be even-handed i acknowledge that but you know when you say in the book for example when you quote robin d'angelo one of the the nemesis of conservatives uh uh uh, saying that white people need to cast aside their discomfort with conversations about their own racism. Um, aren't you in a camp yourself? No one can be out of either of these camps. Oh, no, I think it's a worthy question. I, I think that I, I would uh, disagree with the idea that there is a camp in the sense that, yeah, yes, I know that's the perception. I think that there doesn't need to be this idea of whether you believe that uh, white, you know, this or that. I think that there's nuance. I think that there's middle ground that we can talk about. For example, I think, you know, and Ibram Kendi does, uh, Ibram X. Kendi does a great job in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, of talking but another, about- But another character who sure. Republicans or people on the right absolutely love. He's yeah, one you, of the, 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 the great nemeses of the culture wars. Yeah, but when you look at what he actually wrote, he actually writes- that, that everyone has a degree of racism in the sense that it's not you're racist or you're not racist. It's like, it's only degrees. And so we can have a conversation that says, I can acknowledge that there, I have some degree of racism inside of me and I'm always trying to get rid of that and to be an anti-racist. And so I think part of the issue is on the right, there is such a uh, they just, they, uh, but they don't want to, uh, conservatives, and I understand that, they simply don't want to think in that language. Yeah. Another aspect of your book, which I was curious about, you seem to suggest you're, you're, you have some models here. You have one character, Bill Do uh, Doherty, uh, one of the, the nation's leading family therapists and co-founders of Braver Angels, which is an attempt to bring people together, of creating community workshops, which again sounds noble, I guess, in a way, but isn't that a, a cultural feature of the left, workshops? Uh, <laughs> yes. yes, and in fact, I even- certainly would be something I would do everything in, I could to avoid. I would never go into a workshop. <laughs> well, no, and I, I understand that. And actually, that's why I actually write that we can't send the country to workshops. That's not the point of featuring Braver Angels. The point is to say they have shown that, that when you think strategically about how to address these sorts of interactions between people who aren't like each other, then there are ways that you can actually do it. 
but the but then that's just the introduction because then the question is how do we do this on a grander scale and i i mm. don't think and i think it's important to mention andrew that you know there's no guarantees of any kind that that we're going to accomplish this you know i'm setting out the um some of the steps that we can maybe take mm. but i'm not necessarily optimistic about the direction we're heading in i'd like to say i am but I don't know. I don't see any evidence that we're heading in that direction. But that's why I wrote this book. Well, I, one of the nice things I liked about the book was you do talk quite a lot about quite literally bridge builders. You say it's not literally about bridge builders, but you have a, a lovely section on bridge building. You, you talk about the, the cantilever process. Uh, and then you say, uh, if I tell you San Francisco, you're quoting someone who you talked to in the book. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Um, now, of course, what you're suggesting is the first thing that comes to mind is the Golden Gate Bridge. But I live here. Yeah. And when I think San Francisco, the first thing that comes to mind are homeless encampments, mm. is the, the feudalized nature of life in this bizarre town. My point here is that the divisions amongst us aren't just perceptual. There is a, a there, these are there are profound socioeconomic uh, chasms in American life, yeah. which can't just be fixed through marriage counseling, which can't just be talked over. You don't talk that much in the book about the, the, the structural changes in American capitalism. Why not? You know, it's interesting you ask that because in the early concept of this book, I had a chapter that was going to address the role of capitalism and how we can start to start to address that. I, I, the reason I didn't go down that road is because I feel like a lot of the policy issues are going to be up to the policymakers to debate. We can't even get to a debate about policy, though, until we actually establish this social trust be between each other. Yes, probably we have to do th think something about capitalism, but how do we do something about capitalism unless you and I have that social trust? That means we can actually work together. I think that you know, this debate, this long but, 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 debate, but, 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 but profound reform, as any historian will tell you, is always bloody. You never get yeah. You know, you never get revolutions uh, on the USA Today model where everyone's smiling and happy. I mean, to, you know, again, without wishing to sound too cliched here, you've got to break some eggs to, to make an omelet, Nathan, don't you? I'm not sure what USA Today you're reading because we cover hard news. You yeah, know, I'm teasing you. I, I, and, no. and I know you don't represent USA Today either, but it's always seemed to me to be slightly too cheerful, too consensual. Mm. I think you're reading USA Today from the 80s. You gotta, gotta read okay. this now. I but... need to. Uh, fair, fair point. <laughs> but... Well, to, to be fair, also Nathan, you do really get into fixes. Um, you talk about, and I'm quoting you here, five keys to successful mm. bridge building, and this isn't just rebuilding the the Golden Gate. Um, so, talk me through these these five keys: uh, acknowledging yeah. the past, not labeling people, embracing conflict. Which of these would you say is the most important key? Well, I think you have to start with the first. You have to start with acknowledging the past and not ignoring it. I mean, bridge builders talk about the truth. I mean, they don't ignore it. And I think you know Isabel Wilkerson in her book Cast talked about it very eloquently, where she said doctors don't do a diagnosis without understanding your history first. You know, you simply can't have a conversation about how to fix what ails us without talking about the past. And so you, you need, but I think the key is how do we talk about the past without shaming people? I think blame is important. Shame is actually counterproductive because ultimately it's just going to lead to this knee jerk 
counterproductive response, and people are going to, you know, shy away. Okay, so I get that. But so how do we talk, for example, in terms of acknowledging the past, how, how would you talk about the two great crimes in American history, the obliteration, the annihilation of the native peoples who existed here before the Europeans showed up, and the enslavement of African Americans? I mean, those are brutal and incredibly yeah. controversial subjects. Not everyone agrees on them. Oh, I, oh, of course. And one of the most inspiring opportunities I had for this book was to meet with a group called Coming to the Table, which is entirely built around bringing people together on a conversation about the legacy of slavery. Half of their board basically is made up of people descended from enslavers. Half of their board made up of people descended from people who were enslaved. And so this conversation is a dynamic conversation that's going on in these groups throughout the country. And I talked to them about it. I think that they take this shoulder to shoulder approach instead of face to face. And what I mean by that is they help, they basically bring people alongside and say, let me show you how this has this legacy has affected me or you know you need to sort of understand how this has affected me from my perspective not you know it, it, and i think that that is, an, is sort of one way to do it because this sort of shoulder to shoulder relationship com- sort of building and conversation can be a way that we can share our perspectives and uh, and then and not make other people feel like uh, you know like they're being preached to uh, you know i think that that's one way to do it but this is very difficult unfortunately I, i'm not sure that there are any easy answers proud to have these uh, difficult conversations because if it was easy, we would have done it by now. Talk about a couple of the other keys. Um, what about um, listening instead of talking? Uh, you don't talk that much in the book about the role of media and the digital revolution, but clearly that's changing everything. And that encourages us to talk rather than listen. How much of the problem of polarized America do, do you put onto uh, the internet and particularly social media? Yeah, I, I think it's a significant. I mean, I, I think historians are going to look back and say that the internet was the seminal moment that really accelerated this divide. I mean, I think there's really not much debate about that, to be honest. And so, but I also, so I think social media is a massive catalyst and there's no question about it. And in fact, when I set out to do this book, I said, I want to do a chapter on someone who is using social media to bring people together. And Andrew, that was the most difficult uh, subject to find, was to find that person. But I found these people who are using essentially authentic imagery that are you know, from like, for example, African countries or um, Asian countries and trying to show people how other people on the other side of the world live to basically break down these barriers to say, listen, they go get the cup of coffee every morning just like you do. The differences between you and them are not that not that wide, and so it helps us un- helps us appreciate our similarities at the same time that we appreciate our differences. So I think there are some ways. The problem is if the algorithms on social media are always going to be focused on sensational things, then we're not going to be able to build those bridges through technology. And uh, what about recognizing the limits of dialogue? Um, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that it's, you can't write a book about the importance of having conversation with people who aren't like you without acknowledging that that's not going to work for everybody, that some people aren't, you're not going to break through. I think there are alternative means of communication. And I think that art and theater and film is one way that we can do that because some people aren't going to get the message, whether if you just sort of talk to them or you have that sort of conversation from a shoulder to shoulder perspective. I think some people will get the message though, if you send it through art in some form or another. 
you have four more concrete fixes at the end of the book, which each of which I found pretty intriguing. I think uh, encouraging a national service movement is is a very good idea. It's not you're obviously not the first person to come up with this. But this seems to be key. How realistic is a national service movement in the America of 2021? I actually think it's a lot more realistic than you might think because the the framework for it was already passed in a bipartisan perspective under President Obama. It's just actually waiting for the money to be allocated to it. So you actually see people on both the left and the right advocating for a much more significant public service campaign in this country, whether it's through AmeriCorps or some other uh, perhaps new program. And so I think it's pretty well established. When you talk to someone like Ibu Patel at the Interfaith Youth Corps, who's bringing together Muslims, evangelical Christians, Jewish people basically to do public service projects because he realizes that when you serve someone else, you're serving alongside someone who's not like you, then you start to have conversations and you start to realize maybe there's more that, that brings us together than that should divide us. And then also you- But, but you, wouldn't you, can, you say that, Nathan, you know, I get the fact that maybe Muslims and Christians and Jews are different in the sense that they pray to different gods, although actually they pray, they seem to pray to the same God. But shouldn't be the the effort of, an, uh, of uh, and I'm not saying you're not saying this, but shouldn't be the- the real effort of, of, of national service, bringing together rich and poor kids in particular, kids from San Francisco and Oklahoma and New York City. Yeah, I, I love that idea. And in fact, you know, in, in the book, I talk about the fact that some colleges are finally starting to fight back against the fact that freshmen at colleges often end up rooming together. They pick these people. Right. In advance. So that, this is actually your third, uh, your third. Right. Uh, concrete fix, uh, nudging college students to build connections with other students who aren't like them, which is another good idea. Yeah, because freshmen are, are allowed these days at most universities to pre-select their roommates. And then, of course, they find the people who are like them. They look like them. They actually may have the same background as them. And what they have found is that usually the rich kids find the rich kids, for example, which often means, of course, the white kids find the white kids. And so I don't think that's going to do much to help us. And unfortunately, we're seeing some universities who are not allowing that anymore. And so I think that's one small way we can start to get people to work together. I actually think this culture of relationship building can be integrated into our institutions. I also think in schools, we could do it too, because right. we're in a you virtual talk about, world. You, you, you talk about this. Uh, this is your second, yeah. uh, your, your yeah. second uh, concluding fix. Uh, teaching student techniques for effective engagement, promoting collaboration, and improving class history lessons. Again, I, I, I appreciate the nobility of your sentiment, but education's in crisis, Nathan. Mm. Can we really expect this in the schools? Mm. I don't know if we can really expect it. I think that it's certainly necessary. I mean, I think, for example, we also need to invest heavily in media literacy and teaching kids how to sort through the facts, you know, fa sorting fact from fiction, the principles of basic journalism that, you know, I do on a daily basis are suddenly the principles you need to be an effective citizen in this democracy. So there's all kinds of things you need to do to education. But I actually think these are small things in some ways. The fact that we live in virtual classroom settings now, and I think virtual, virtual classrooms are going to be a, a, with us in some capacity for a long time. So why do we have to say kids from this school only work from kids for, with kids from this school? How about kids from another district? Let's form relationships across districts and begin to break down these barriers that are, or, that are so rigid in our society. And the fourth uh, fix, final fix that you have, I think is, in my mind, at least the least convincing, 
You say foster relationships on Capitol Hill by overhauling congressional rules and procedures. So we're back to Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden. We're back to the Democrats and Republicans arguing about infrastructure plans. Doesn't seem to be particularly effective. We're back to Donald Trump and uh, Elise uh, Stefanik. How realistic, again, um, Nathan, can we expect there to be let's say in the next five to 10 years, structural reform in Washington, D.C.? Well, I understand your skepticism on this point, and it's not intended to say this is going to fix Washington. It's just one minor thing to say, listen, I, I think it's pretty well established on Capitol Hill that the mechanics of how they do business has led to them basically not having relationships now. And so the fact that Democrats don't you know, go to the bar with Republicans, I, I don't think that's the reason for all our problems in society, but I do think it's one minor reason why we find ourselves in this situation where both sides seem to hate each other as much as they do. So I think there are small things that can be done with the congressional calendar to basically force them to actually work together a little bit more. I, again, I think this is bridge building is a, is a lot of small things across the board. There's no one thing that can be done. We have to chip away at this over time. And that's how we can begin to tackle this issue. Well, Nathan, you are the supreme American optimist. You believe this thing will be fixed. What about one other potential outcome? Trump still has an iron grip on the Republicans, as we reported at the beginning of this conversation. Uh, but the Republicans, as everyone tells us, are shrinking. Um, is it conceivable that one side of this polarized America will emerge victorious and the other side will just shrink and shrink and shrink and eventually just go away? Well, if I had a political crystal ball on that, uh, I would probably be in a different business. So I, can't, I don't know where we're headed. I know that I'd say the system is pretty well constructed to ensure that it's a two-party system and that we've seen over time that both parties seem to evolve. So I'd be pretty surprised if we head in that direction. But uh, you come back to me in 30 years and we'll have that conversation then. Well, I'm going to come back to you in much less time than uh, 30 years, Nathan, because... You're a very smart young man, and you've written an excellent book, Bridge Builders, Bringing People Together in a Polarized Age. You just wrote a book. Your last book was about Detroit. This book is about making America in some ways like Detroit, bringing America back, bringing people together in a polarized age. It's a noble book. I don't, I'm not sure I agree with all of it, but it's certainly well worth reading. You're talking to me from uh, Virginia, what else should people be reading in these strange times in early May 2021? We're all stuck inside. Oh, well, I'll tell you what. I mean, a, a book that I loved uh, that I read just as I was finishing up this book was a book by Valerie Cower called See No Stranger. She's a Sikh civil rights activist. And, you know, she it's basically a memoir of her efforts to bring people together. And, you know, she's uh, she's an advocate for civil rights and full-throated in that way. But she talks at length in that book um, about how we are all in this, in, you know, in this inescapable web of mutuality, as, as Dr. King said. But the phrase she used was, you are a part of me I do not yet know. In the sense, she says, I can't understand perhaps yet why your story is critical to my story. Um, but it is. And if we don't do this together, then we will fail. Again, I come back to climate change. I think if we don't work together on that, it's likely the climate is doomed. And so, you know, there are issues in which, yeah, I mean, maybe we'd love to say, let's never work together again. Let's get that divorce you're talking about. But I actually don't think this is about divorce. This is about, you're, we're, we're a family and we will always be a family. 
we're kids, you know, where it's parents and kid relationship maybe is the better metaphor because you'll always be my parent perhaps, but you know, whether or not we're in the same place, it's more of a question of, are we functioning as a family? Well, you're not the first person uh, or, or certainly the last person, Nathan, to end with uh, Martin Luther, words from Martin Luther King. Actually, Jonathan Taplin last week ended with a King quote too. Uh, the most optimistic of Americans, uh, he, believes in a, he believed in a better future. Uh, Nathan Bomey does too. His book, Bridge Builders, Bringing People Together in a Polarized Age is an excellent, short, brisk, authoritative read. Thank you so much, Nathan. And as I said, we'll certainly have you back on the show in less than 30 years. Keep well (laughs) and keep bringing people together. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me.